growing up in Canton, Ohio, developing an interest in music and eventually heading off to college, but just relentlessly playing music on the side with friends, with bands, Macy Gray started to make a bit of a name for herself, but also found a ton of struggle, early deals with major record labels that just didn't pan out. And yet along with all of this struggle, she refused to give up. Finally, in 1999, she broke through in the music world with her iconic song, I Try, selling more than 25 million albums, winning a Grammy, two Brit Awards. She was on top of the world, but the journey that got her there was really hard. And the years that would follow would bring even more challenge, but often of a different nature, including the pressures of managing fame and the introduction of drugs to her world. Having landed in a more grounded place in life now, more seasoned, wiser, focused intensely on her work, her fierce creative talent and powerful, distinct voice have opened the door to tours, new albums, even appearances on screen, acting alongside people like Denzel Washington and so many others. Her most recent album, Ruby, with the song Buddha, where she collaborates with one of my favorite players out there right now, Gary Clark Jr., offers a line that really seems to be her current mantra. I'm all right now. So really excited to share this conversation and Macy's journey with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. show is sponsored by meditation app 10% Happier. So the app, it comes with courses that they teach you how to stress better, deal with difficult emotions and build healthier habits. I love that the material is entertaining and relatable. The host, New York Times bestselling author, Dan Harris, he's funny, he's real, he's vulnerable, and he's teamed up with some of the world's best meditation teachers to show you how meditation helps kind of smooth out some of life's wrinkles using cutting edge science and hard won experience to demonstrate the tangible benefits that meditation can have. And listeners of Good Life Project get 40% off. Just go to 10percent.com slash goodlife. That's 10% all spelled out, T-E-N-P-E-R-C-E-N-T dot com slash goodlife. And if you aren't ready to meditate just yet, but are curious how smart, ambitious people use meditation and benefit from it, well then check out the 10% Happier podcast. Either way, you can find it all at 10percent.com slash goodlife. Yeah, so good to be hanging out with you. I know it's weird times, right? Because you're in New York City um, playing it. You know, like you were here to play a show at the Beacon mm-hmm. on the day that sort of like New York says, okay, all shows are are shut down. Um, they just, uh, because of the 500 capacity thing, yeah, yeah. they didn't, there was no public ticket sales. Oh. It was only, it was, they called it friends and family. There was yeah. people on the list and it was huge. It went on for five hours. No kidding. Yeah, they had everybody. It was Dave Matthews, the Black Crows, Jackson Brown, me, Jostone, everybody. Leon Bridges, was, um, Cindy Lauper. Was Jimmy Vaughn in it? Because I know he was up for that show last Jimmy year. Jimmy Vaughn was there, Fox and Tedeschi. Yeah, so I kind of want to bounce around, like just explore mm-hmm. some different things for you. I mean, you're originally from, from Ohio, Canton area? Yeah, Canton, Ohio. Yeah, do you have fond memories of growing up there? Of course, yeah. I had, a, I had a cool childhood, you know. My mom was a teacher. My dad worked at a factory, and he had a barber shop. And it's Midwest, so it's pretty boring and simple. But it's a good way to grow up, though, because you have your values first and stuff like that. So was your dad's barbershop sort of like the, that classical barbershop that you think of where it's just kind of like it's the hub where everyone's hanging out, chatting? Yeah, it was like four old guys. They actually called themselves Old Thomas. They had an Old Thomas club. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And like the same customers they had had since they started were still coming there. It was always packed, always talking. But it was like old man lingo, you know. Yeah. It was like stuff they talked about. I didn't know what was going on. Did you hang out there much or not really? I was always there because I had to go there after school and wait for him to take me home. On Saturdays, my mom would drop me off there if she had something to do, you know, because I couldn't be home by myself. Yeah, so you're like I a fixture. Always at the bomb shop. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah, he taught me how to cut a little bit. Oh, did he really? A little bit. <laughs> I'm not as good as he was. <laughs> I can do a proper fade and a lineup. 
could line your hair up pretty nice. That that's pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, it must have been so fun, also, because like I just like that. I mean, I think so many stories get told, like mm-hmm. when you're kind of like kicking around an environment like that, and like I think people come come clean, they get honest, and they just sort of like you, you get to know what's really happening, sort of like around certain people's lives and settings mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, it's um, it's cool. The the thing about the Midwest is it's honest. Like people don't. There's no nuance when you meet somebody from Ohio. They kind of kind of is what it is. You are what you are. Kind of. Because I live in LA, so it's, to- that's all nuance. Totally different, <laughs> right? <laughs> There's nothing but nuance. So, yeah. So uh, so it's, it's cool. It's a cool way to grow. It's a good. It's a good start. I think. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like I'm 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 a New Yorker. I grew up just outside of New York. I've been in the city for thirty years, oh, so really? it's sort of like this is kind of what I know, you know. Yeah, exactly. LA is kind of a similar vibe, but not quite. It's sort of no. Uh, LA is a whole nother planet. <laughs> you have to live there to know what I'm talking about. Yeah. What part? Yeah. What part of LA are you in? I live in the Valley. Yeah. But I've lived all over LA. I've been out there since I was seventeen. I went there to go to school. I went to USC. Right. I kind of been out there ever since. You are so. I mean, when does music enter your life? I mean, I like. It sounds like you actually like. Was was piano the first exposure for you, or was there something else? Uh, piano when I was seven. Yeah, I took piano lessons. Was that voluntary, or was that like your parents saying you will learn a, an instrument? Oh yeah, that was all force. <laughs> yeah, that was all torture. Did you um, like it? I mean, was it? No, I hated it. I hated it. my my teacher was like a thousand years old. And she's really slow. And, you know, like today I see a lot of teachers, like when I took my kids to get piano lessons, they would say, tell me your favorite song and I'll teach you how to play your favorite song, you know. But um, when I was coming up, it was all theory and technique and classical training and stuff like that. Yeah, so it's like scales and doing all the stuff that is. Yeah, super boring. Right. But it's cool to know all that stuff. I don't regret it. It's cool to, you know. I get to impress the guys with <laughs> my knowledge of scales. Yeah. Has the theory side stayed with you over the years? Oh, yeah. That's stuff you never forget. It's like going to school. You never forget math and stuff like that. Do you still play piano? Yeah. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. I know when you compose, it's it's mostly just by voice, right? Or when you're sort of like thinking of when you're actually like writing. Yeah, I've written some stuff on the guitar. It's weird. I'm not a guitar player, but I know the chords. Yeah. So all the songs that I've Written the music for, I wrote them on a guitar. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, isn't that weird? Even since like the early days. Yeah, I wrote, I tried on the guitar. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, because I didn't have a piano at my house. Yeah. Day. I do now. Right. I guess it takes a lot less space to do it on it guitar. Does. Right? It's like, yeah. especially in the early days where like most of us have these little studios or something uh, like that. Well, guitars are so portable. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. So, so that's like your early exposure, but it sounds like it didn't land well. Did 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 you stay with it long enough where like you turned the corner and you and you hit a point where you like sort of like learned enough where it started to become fun or for you was it always just kind of like I'm doing this because I have to and what I'm I can't wait to be done? Uh, no, piano lessons I I always hated and I I had to take it till I was in in high school and then uh, but it sticks with you and and you do without even realizing it you uh, you start writing songs you know. Talking ideas, and uh, and you you listen to music differently than most people. Tell me more about that. How so? Like you listen to, uh, I don't know. I listen to a lot of production. I listen to like you hear detail a lot when you when you're a musician, and voice, and you know you can tell when somebody's flat. You know, whereas the average person doesn't really care if somebody's flat. Do you know what I mean? Like when rappers sing, it just really bothers me because they can't sing, but they sing anyway. But most people, like my son, doesn't really care. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. your son's in the business now. Or? He he's actually uh, written songs for a couple artists, but uh, he's he's not like it's not his whole thing yet. No. Yeah. He's twenty three. I mean, he's still figuring it out. It's interesting too that you say you can kind of hear it when somebody's off a little bit because these days when I have a bunch of friends who are sort of like in the business and they pretty much all say that. Almost any producer that you work with these days, it's almost like you almost don't have a choice to go through auto tune and go through all these things where it basically kind of makes you sound as perfect as they can. Mm-hmm. Is that do you find that that's the experience still? Uh, yeah, there's there's plenty of machines, but you can still hear if you're a musician, you can still hear the off, like you can hear the auto tune. You know what I mean? There's there's all this software, there's melodyne, which I use because you because you want to. Deliver a certain quality, um, 
But uh, but you can you, stuff like auto tune you can hear. I don't know if you can hear Melodyne very much, but everybody uses Melodyne. It's like uh, it's like editing a film. Got it. It's like they go away and if, if somebody's even a little bit off, Melodyne fixes it vocally. It just tweaks it, yeah. Yeah. I mean, but when you're when you're live on stage, obviously, like you you're not using stuff like that because I get a sense that you're. There's more power. There's more. Like if you listen to yourself live on stage, and if you listen to yourself once you're like in the studio, is there do you do you favor one or the other? Live, I'm much better live. Yeah. Yeah, because live is immediate, and you got to get it right, and and I have all the energy around me. I have to, you know, be be on for my audience and and my band. You know, I'm I'm like pitch and everything. I'm better live. Because in the studio, you get all these chances and, you know, you can mess around and you get drunk and you smoke a bunch of weed. And, you know what I mean? So you have all this time. You can go back and do it tomorrow. But live, you got you got one shot, you know? Yeah. So it's like the stakes are higher when you're yeah. live. Yeah. So you, so you, I, I usually rise to the occasion live. But in the studio, I know I got, you know, all those machines you were talking about. And I don't know. It's mental. Yeah, and a number of takes also, right? If you need it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't need a lot of takes though. I'm pretty good in the studio. But just live I I'm I'm much better. So you mentioned you ended up uh you went to USC um mm-hmm. for school. Where what what did you actually go to study when you went there? Screenwriting. Where that where did that come from? Were you into movies or writing when you were younger also? Yeah, I had I had that was actually my little my little uh gift. I had I was good at good with the pen. I could like write my way through school. Like, if I'd mess up in class, I'd write these really nice letters to my teachers. And I could always, like, I could always write. So when I was applying for colleges, I wasn't really interested in anything yet. My mother wanted me to be a doctor because she knew doctors made a lot of money. But I was I had no interest in science. So the only thing I could do was write. So I applied to only a writing program. So Stanford had a creative writing. USC had screenwriting. Um, I forget the other schools I applied to. But I, I only applied to schools in California because I wanted to live in California. And I only applied to schools that had writing programs. And I got in all of them. Oh, that's amazing. What made you end up in uh, USC? Was it because it was LA or something else? Um, I think probably they gave me the most money. Got it. Yeah. Which, Knowing my parents, that's what it was. <laughs> and it's, it's how it is for so many of us, right? It's sort of like, yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah. They're I all good, but happened. like, what do you got? Yeah. Yeah. Were you doing? Were you writing just for yourself when you were a kid? Like, were you doing poetry or stories or anything else, or it was really just more yeah, like for school? I could write anything. I still can. I could, like, you know, uh, I could do poetry. Anytime we had essays and stuff, and and I got through college with that. I used to write papers for the people for money. No kidding. <laughs> yeah, I used to write essays and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's what you got to do. So you're so you're in school. But it sounds like even though the music bug didn't take when you were a kid on mm-hmm. the piano, it does start to take when you're in college. Mm-hmm. What? How does that start to touch down? Uh, just that was a lot of the, my friends were music students and um, I hang, hung out with them a lot and they would always uh, get together writing and uh, going to the studio and stuff like that. And it just kind of grew on me. I, I don't know. I started doing shows with this band this little jazz band. I yeah. couldn't really sing, but it was just so much fun to me. Yeah. And then uh, I got out of school and I actually started working in movies because I still thought I was going to be like a big shot movie producer. I thought I was going to like write movies and be like Steven Spielberg. Yeah. Oh, so you're still like in school the whole time. Like, like the music's happening on the side, but you're yeah. still focused on, okay, I'm, I'm going to be a writer or screenwriter. Yeah. Oh, no kidding. Because that's what I went to school for. Yeah. I thought that's what I was going to do. Right. So was your first step out? I mean, did, did you try and find a sort of like a, a regular or mainstream gig like in the movie industry? Yeah, I, I got I, I was a PA for a while. You know, PA production Yeah, assistant. right. The one with the headsets or like telling people when they get... We don't even get a headset. <laughs> That's the first thing. Oh, the, man. The PAs are like, go flush the toilet. Like, you go do whatever. It's a horrible job. You got to work your way up. But I, uh, but I did that for like two years. I was waitress. I used to clean this photographer's studio. I did all kind of, I worked at McDonald's, Wendy's. I did all that stuff. Yeah, basically anything you need to do. Yeah. So, and music was just kind of happening in the background for you at that point. Yeah, I was in a band the whole time. 
Got it. Same band or bopping around with different bands? Different, different one. Like I put together my own band after I got out of school. It was a rock band. And we used to play all all that. So back then, I don't know how it is now, the, the up and coming, what they have to go through. But back then, there's they call it the strip. Yeah. And there's all these live clubs on the strip. Right. It's on Sunset mostly. Yeah. And then. um, I think it's kind of the same probably, isn't it? I don't know. You know, I haven't kept up. All those clubs are still there. The yeah. Anyways. Right. But uh, I don't really know how it works. But back then we had pay to play. So you had to pay and then you could you could do a show at these clubs. Right. Yeah. Or it's almost like, I know this happens in the comedy world. Um, does this happen in the music world also where it's like they call them bringer shows? Mm-hmm. Where it's like you got to bring a, like you, you get an hour or 30 minutes on the stage, but you got to bring a certain amount of people to basically pay the cover or like buy booze. <laughs> yeah, we had to buy a ticket. So we had to buy our own tickets and then we could go sell the tickets. But none of our friends had any money, so that was all. <laughs> that was all in vain. But you had to buy like, gosh, I'm gonna age myself right now. It was only maybe two hundred dollars back then. Yeah. But that was like hard for us to scrape up. Yeah. Between the, between the four of us. I mean, if you're just getting by, so it's kind of funny. So it's like you buy tickets, like you work your day job mm-hmm. to basically buy tickets to give to your friends to come for free. Exactly, because they don't have <laughs> right. Money. I know, because the only way you're making money back is if they pay $10 each and they're like, I'm not paying $10, come see you. You know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> I don't even have $10. Right. It's like, so. and, and plus, you're my friend. I mean, come on. Yeah. And then half of them wouldn't even show up anyway. So we'd be playing for like 10 people. But we, you know, but I don't know. When when you're that young, it, you don't really care about that kind of stuff. You just yeah. want to play. Yeah. I hear you. In those bands, were you singing or were you, were you playing instruments or were you just sort of like mixing it up different things or? No, I was I was singing, but I was doing a lot of the writing and and uh, with with my band and stuff like that. We we actually put out a couple songs that I did back then. Oh no kidding! On my late album. Mm-hmm. Do you have those somewhere still? Yeah, there's a song called Sweet Baby that was on my second album. Um, there was a song called Harry that was on my second album. I wrote I Try, of course, back then. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm curious actually how you actually stepped into the role of singing because. When you're hanging out, like, and you're creating a jazz band, what was it in you that said, okay, I want I want to be the singer? Because, you know, you got a whole bunch of players. What made you say, this is the role I want to play? Like, I want to sing. And then also, like, how did you feel about your voice when you start singing? Um, I, I wasn't crazy about it. I thought it was pretty peculiar. Um, but uh, I just enjoyed it. I couldn't stay away from it. And, and I really liked uh, being on stage. And I liked the hustle. I liked trying to get my friends there, you know, that was in social media. So you had to like go all over Hollywood and put your stickers. We had to make stickers, like band stickers. I don't think anybody does. Do people still do that? I don't even know. No, I remember like you used to make, like give all like the little invites and hang about us. I think we're a similar age also. So I remember all that stuff. Flyers, like standing on the street, giving people flyers. And so that's so, but I I just like for some reason I was so attached to that, and then I used to send my little art demo tapes. That's how old I am. We had demo tapes, they were cassettes. Yeah. And we used to. There was this magazine. Um, what was it called? Music something. There was like a weekly um trade magazine for yeah. for musicians, and it always had listed all the A and R and their phone right. numbers. So that's not going to happen today. <laughs> no. <laughs> So we used to call them up and send them our tapes and stuff like that. And I just, I don't know. That was just so much fun to me. Yeah. I was so into it. I used to dream about it. I mean, did you think at that point, like, okay, so I want this to be my thing. Like, this is my career. Or were you still hanging on to, look, um, I'm working whatever jobs I can. I'm doing music because I just love it. But I still kind of, like, want to work my way into screenwriting in some way, shape, or form. I, w- I wasn't doing PA stuff. I just thought that's what I would do because that's what I went to school for. That was just in my head, you know what I mean? But I was spending all my time on music. So, and I, I don't think I knew what was going to happen. I just think I think I knew in the back of my head that it was reachable, that I, I could I could get there somehow. Yeah. Like it seemed, po- that felt possible to me for some reason. Right. Okay, so you're, you're, you're fresh out of USA. You're gigging around LA. You've, you come from this, you know, like awesome sort of like you know, Ohio value <laughs> set and your mom wants you to be a doctor or something like that. Yeah. What's, what are your, what's going through your parents' minds and what are the conversations with them after you're out of school and you're like, this music thing is sort of like drawing me in. And, and were they sort of curious about what you were up to? Yeah. I don't, 
I don't know. My my parents kind of let me be on my, because like I said, that's that Midwest thing. Like in Ohio, when you're 18, you're an adult. It's not like we do now. Like we have 25 year olds living in our houses. They didn't do that. <laughs> so I was on my own. So I think they were just letting me be on my own. I think they were just, you know, they figured I'd figure it out. Like they, you know, they weren't really bashing me or encouraging me either way. They did not think I could sing. My mother was very clear. She says, you cannot sing. You need to let that go. Oh, no kidding. She did. (laughs) (laughs) She said, you need to figure out what you're going to do. I don't know what you're going to do, but you need to stop trying to sing. I remember that conversation. What was that like when your mom tells you that? Did you believe her at at any point? No, you know, I was at that age. I didn't really listen to my mom. But I I vividly remember that conversation. You know, when people tell you stuff like that, you just want to do it more. You don't want nobody telling you what you can't do. That's right. the worst thing you can tell somebody. Especially a parent. Yeah. <laughs> Especially like with a kid in the 20s. Yeah, good luck with that. Okay, you just gave me all the ammunition <laughs> I need to go all in on this one Yeah, thing. they just don't want to talk to you for a week. That's yeah. all that accomplishes. Right. So, But but in their mind, basically, as long as you're you're paying your rent, you're taking care of yourself, it's kind of like you do your thing. Yeah, I mean, I was still like needing money from my dad and I was putting my food on their credit card and stuff like that. But. Yeah. Um, so that's the thing they would call about. Like, why do you put another pizza on my credit card? <laughs> that's the conversations I was having. Good Life Project is supported by HubSpot. Complex enterprise software, it shouldn't get in the way of launching your next campaign. That is why HubSpot built the new marketing hub enterprise. So say goodbye to countless hours of software management. Their platform offers the power and flexibility that scaling companies need to succeed with the ease of use that you expect. So you match every customer interaction to revenue, use AI to test and optimize, and create more personalized experiences. Plus, you can integrate HubSpot with hundreds of other tools and apps. So stop managing your outdated and overly complex software and start creating remarkable customer experiences. Learn more about the new features in Marketing Hub Enterprise at hubspot.com slash Wondery. That's hubspot.com slash Wondery. This episode is supported by Lamps Plus. So with so many people getting reacquainted with their homes right now, including us, making your home feel comfortable, it's a priority. And lighting plays such an important role in both the feel of a room and also how it makes you feel. Lamps Plus can really help. It's the nation's largest lighting retailer. Lampsplus.com offers exclusive styles and lighting and home furnishing to brighten your home and transform it into a comfortable space from chandeliers, ceiling fans and fountains to outdoor lights, floor and table lamps, even lamps with built-in USBs to keep your devices charged. We actually just ordered a set of these Bernie Industrial Bronze Table Lamps with USBs and also this really cool Robert Abbey Orion Matte Midnight blue accent lamp for our daughter's room. Can't wait for those to arrive. And if you'd love a bit of professional advice for your home, also Lamps Plus offers free virtual design services with one of their certified lighting experts, all from the comfort of your home. From exclusive designs you won't find anywhere else to trusted brands like Minka, which is known for decorative pieces that blend function and style using innovative materials. Lamps Plus, they just make it easy to complete the look you want. Lamps Plus is offering up to 50% off hundreds of lights, furniture, and decor from now until May 25th. That's up to 50% off during the Lamps Plus home furnishing sale through May 25th at lampsplus.com slash goodlife. Start saving right now at lampsplus.com slash goodlife or just click the link in the show notes now. So you're getting around and at some point you you meet uh, Joe Solo. Yeah. And that sounds like that was kind of the catalyst to creating the demos that would eventually lead to the first time you got signed. Yeah, that was, Joe was uh, one of the bands. He's probably in the third band that I was with. Got it. Yeah. Three simultaneously or? <laughs> no, like I had my band in college. Then I got out of college and I started this, like it was like a hard rock band. Like literally all the guys had long hair. and. We did like top of Metallica. Right. <laughs> and then um and then I met Joe and then we did another whole thing. 
Do you have a picture of that, like you and the sort of like the, the hair metal band somewhere? I do somewhere. <laughs> I got to dig that up. That's probably old. That's awesome. Uh, right. Because that would have been sort of like uh, late 80s, right? Uh, not the we're in the early 90s. 90s. Yeah, right, yeah. right. Yeah, that's sort of like the height of yeah, all of that. Yeah, I got school in 91. Right. So it's the height of all that stuff. So you, I mean, it sounds like you and Joe really start. Were you co-writing? Were you recording? Were sort of like doing the demo thing? Because I think that yeah. turned into a really long-term collaboration too. Yeah, we did demos. We did a million demos. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What was it? Because pretty soon after that was when you first got signed to Atlantic, right? Yeah. So or was there something in the middle there? No, I got signed to Atlantic when I was with Joe. He he didn't. He was on the Atlantic record. Yeah, so it like nine, 97, 98 ish or something like that. I forget. I remember yeah. I was 24. So I don't know. 90 something. Yeah. What was it like when when a company in that like Atlantic says, okay, do you have a deal? Because especially in LA, that's sort of like the dream. Oh, yeah. That was huge. Yeah. I you know, like when you get the record deal, because you don't know anything about the music business. So you think that's it. I got a record deal. I'm going to be in Michael Jackson. You know what I mean? By tomorrow. <laughs> but it doesn't work like that. So, yeah, so I got signed. Right after I got signed, I got pregnant. And I made my album and then they dropped me. Mm. What was the, did they, what was the reason that they gave you for dropping it? Um, I remember they got a new president. And they didn't really give me a reason. They just stopped. That was it. Yeah. It was like, they don't want to do, they don't want to put your record out. We made it the whole record. We did the cover and everything. Oh, so you made it, but they wouldn't even put it. They they didn't put it out. No. When something like that happens, because I don't know this, do you get the rights on the music to then keep it and, and do something else with it, or do they just own it no matter what? No, they own it. That's that's the that's the big the big the big jack you get when you when you sign a record deal. They unless you know at this point I would never sign over everything, but. And and then back then everything was perpetuity, right? So, so once you sign a record deal, they have it forever. So basically, they could just take take an album and sit on it and never release it, or decide mm -hmm. like twenty years later if you get famous, oh look what we have. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's changed a lot now, though, hasn't it? Or or not so much? Not really. Really? No. Only only thing that's really changed is, you know, of course, streaming is is how people hear music, which speaks to people, what people, artists get in return for that. But uh, most, most record deals are, you know, they, they take, they take the record. Yeah. Yeah. You're pregnant. Because they pay for it. It's like if you pay for a hamburger, it's right. your hamburger. Yeah. So you're pregnant with your first kid. Atlantic drops you. Mm -hmm. What's going through your mind at that point? Mm, having a healthy baby. <laughs> I just wanted to have. Um, healthy. I, I remember that being my, because I used to party a lot. I was drinking. Me and my ex-husband smoked, you know, like we did everything. So I was really, I remember just being really stressed out about my baby being healthy. Yeah. So everything kind of focuses on that at that point. Yeah. And then we got married and I was, it was just, oh no, I didn't get married on my first. We were, I moved in with him though. And that was crazy. But I kept playing. I was doing shows eight, seven, eight months pregnant. I was working. Yeah. I was still doing everything. So you're still out gigging and everything else is happening, but the record deal is something on the side that kind of goes away. Yeah. I mean, in your mind, when something like that happens, because you're young too, right? Mm -hmm. Is Do you think to yourself, well, okay, I'm just not right for them or they're not right for me, but something else will come along? Or do you think like I had my shot and like that was it? Yeah, I didn't know what was going to happen. I kept playing. So obviously I felt like, it wasn't over. And that's really, at that point, that's the only thing I figured I could do well and where I knew people and I knew the music scene and stuff. So I stayed stuck with that. I was doing like temp jobs, like office jobs, yeah. stuff like that. Did you stay in LA the whole time after that? Yep. Right. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of heads down, still performing, still, and still writing also. So, mm -hmm. so how does, because pretty shortly after that, you end up back with Epic, right? No, I had actually had my baby and then I got pregnant again. Okay. <laughs> so a couple of years where you're essentially um, you're becoming a mom and, and yeah. raising a family. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, still out playing a lot. 
Yes. So how does how do you sort of step back into the world of of recording? And and was Epic this really then? Because it was Epic that then releases the album with I Try pretty shortly after that, right? Yes. Yeah, so okay, so a lot happened. Yeah. So, Walk me through it. <laughs> okay, so I have two kids now, and I'm just working. It's just me and my ex husband, and um, we live in the valley. I'm still doing music, like making songs and stuff, but it's different because I have two now. Yeah. And him and me aren't getting along at all, but I'm still kind of sending out my tapes and stuff. And then we separated. I moved back in with my mother and my two kids because I'm pregnant again. Right. Oh, in, in Ohio or in a... I, I, I was pregnant with my third, and I moved back to Ohio, stayed with my mom because me and my husband. Yeah. And then it was so weird. I'm at home. And I get a call from Zamba Publishing, which is now Universal. Oh, okay. Yeah. And um, so this guy named uh, Jeff. So he says, uh, he somehow he got a hold of my demo tape. Must have been something I had sent out a long time ago. And he was listening to stuff. And he wanted to, uh, he wanted to, meet, to get together and meet about a publishing deal. So I'm like eight months pregnant, and I just went through that thing with Atlanta. Living in Ohio. Right. I know. So I said, oh, you know, I'm really busy. I can't meet with you right now. <laughs> and I said, maybe I can meet with you, you know, you know, like maybe sometime in October. And he was like, what? You know. Right. It's like, people don't do this. Do you, like, um, come I know. on. <laughs> but looking back, I think that's what made him want me more. Right. I said, I'm busy, you know. So, uh, so sure enough. He calls back like a week before I have my kid. And I said, oh, yeah, I'm still really tied up. They'll call you when, you know, when I'm available. So I have my kid, my third one. And um, literally, he calls me that next day. He didn't know I was having a baby. <laughs> but he called me the next day. And then we set up for me to go out to New York. I went out to New York. Like two days later, my brother drove me out there. And then I met with him and the president of Zamba. And uh, and I got signed. Yeah. Yeah, I had my kid in October, and I, I had my publishing deal before the end of the year. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. So it's like in the in the blink of an eye, it's just everything changes to a certain extent. I know. They offered me $35,000, which was a fortune to me back then. And then I moved back to L.A. I was back in L.A. by January. Got it. Then, so was it a, a deal to write, to produce, like, like for an album or for songs or? Yeah, it was just uh, for the songs that he, I tried was on there. Yeah. And so he was signing me. But at the same time, he was um, shopping me. Because a lot of people don't know publishers, like it behooves them to help you get a record deal because that's how they're going to sell their songs. Okay, so, so he was shopping me to all these labels. And before you know it, I had a bidding war. I had like eight labels after me. No kidding. Mm-hmm. Wow. Was, were you, what was going through your head when, when, so like you go from being at home with your mom, um, Mm -hmm. having your third kid, two days later, you're in New York, sign a publishing deal. And then all of a sudden he's wrapping you around and there's a bidding war for an album. Mm -hmm. What's going through your head when all this is happening? (laughs) Um, I was just, I'm still enjoying my 35 grand, by the way. (laughs) And then, uh, uh, you know, I had uh, kids and, and, um, right. Yeah, this was all super new to me. And like I said, I, did, I still didn't know the business, so I didn't know. I knew it was cool to have eight labels after you, of course, but I didn't know the gravity. Like, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know how big of a deal that was. Yeah. And then I did this showcase, and everybody was there. Doug Morris was there. Um, Polly Anthony, like, all these big, you know, like, all the top people of the record business, but I didn't know who they were. Right. So I was fine. Yeah. Which was good because I just performed. Right. Do, was this a, like in a conference room in one of their places or at a, a small club or something like that? It was at this, they had they rented out a private room in this club back then called Luna. Yeah. And uh, it was probably maybe 30 people there. They were all there, and, but I didn't know. So, Jason Flom was there. So I did my show and then a bunch of people made offers and I, and I ended up going with uh, Epic. Yeah. That's amazing. So at that point, at that point also, you're like, okay, this is incredible. I, I mean, all these people are bidding after me. But at the same time, you kind of know you were signed once before and it's, 
just because that happens doesn't necessarily mean really big things are going to happen to you. Are you sort of like a little bit more cautious as you're sort of, you know, like going into this um, a collaboration with Epic at that point? Or were you just all in again? You're like, you know what, I'm, I'm, let's just do this. Yeah, I was just all in. I was really like, it was so, I was so lucky to not know anything. Yeah. So like, it never occurred to me I might get dropped again. I just wanted to make my album. I was really excited about all these new songs that I wrote. And um, I was actually fighting with Epic because I wanted my my producer who was helping me write at the time. And they wanted another producer because without explaining it to me, they didn't want me to be an R&B artist. They didn't want me to, um, because they felt like my music was a little more crossover, a little different. Mm. So they didn't want to put me out as like the next, you know, Mary J or whatever. And um, and my demos were very like R&B hip hop. Like that's the kind of artist I thought I was going to be. Oh, so they're like, okay, so we heard the demo. Mm -hmm. We see what you're capable of, yeah. but we want to slide you into a different genre. Yeah, but they didn't talk to me about that. Yeah. They, just, <laughs> like, they just were like, first you know, let's sign you. Yeah, here's yeah, the yeah. producer. So I thought I was going to be like, you know, like this proper underground artist, you know. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And just make like little records and stuff. I really wasn't thinking about it. Because that's kind of what I had always been. Yeah. Right. That's what I knew, thought of myself. And then, um, so they brought in Andy Slater, um, who's this Jewish tall white guy. I was like, are you kidding me? You know, um, he wasn't, a, he's not a musician at all. To, very, to produce or to engineer? Produce. Yeah. He's not, but he's very smart. He knows, he knows how records like, are supposed to sound. And he had, he was managing Fiona Apple and the Wallflowers. Right. Which then were huge. Both of them were huge. Yeah. Yeah. So... They brought in Andy, and Andy kind of, I mean, we fought the whole time, but he ended up getting whatever he wanted because he was just kind of that way. He could kind of talk you into anything. Mm. And so, and that's the, that turned out to be the record we made. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I mean, at the end of the day, that wasn't really an R&B record. I, I, know, I don't even know how you categorize it. I know. That's, I think that's why they brought him in because they didn't want, they didn't want me like into one little thing. Right. Yeah. And, and that's the record. That's the record that I try and lands up on. Yeah, that's how life is. Right. So that record, when you're done with that record, you're like, okay, you know, like it's, it's wrapped. It, it's, you know, we got the master done. We're going to market. Mm. Do you have any sense, any, like even the smallest sense for what was about to happen once that record actually made its way out into the public? No. No, they put the record out. And I remember, um, uh, First thing Andy did was put me on the road. So I was I was going to Europe a lot. I was I had already done the UK, and uh, I was like seeing the world. I'm still in my twenties. I have three kids. I'm away from my nightmare marriage, and I'm meeting all these new people. Like everybody on my tour I had a DJ too. I had about a twelve piece band. They're all in their twenties. This is all new to all of us. We're partying. We're having a blast. You know, I brought my sister to babysit, which was a disaster. She ended up leaving, going home. And um, so I had the backup singers babysitting for me. <laughs> I made them take turns. <laughs> it was like... It's like a rotation. Yeah, and then my DJ had a tech, and I had him babysit on nights. Like, I just made my band rotate. It was my, like my first time I got to be a boss and tell everybody what I want to do. And I was kind of enjoying that. And so... I remember when my record came out and uh, I sold, I think it was 8,992 records. Cause I remember Polly called me and she said, you sold 8,992 records. And I screamed, I was the happiest. You would have thought I, I sold 10 million records. I was the happiest person in the world because I had never sold records before. I mean, of course they were disappointed, but I was on cloud nine. I thought I, you know, I thought I had made it, you know? Right. And then, um, uh, so they're think are they thinking in the back of their mind? Oh no, like this is not happening. Even though you're thinking this is awesome, but no, I don't think they because you know what? Um, now that I know the record business, because I had that big bidding war because they spent so much money on my record, like they had they didn't have a choice. Like Polly didn't have a choice. She had to bring my record home. I didn't know that then, but I know how it works now. So, um, but it's a good thing I didn't know. Is that? 
I would have just done things a lot differently and I probably would have messed up a lot of stuff. So anyway, so I just kept touring and they were putting out my records and I, I would hear them on the radio and I thought life was great. And, and I remember it kept going up and then one week it went all the way down. Like I sold 2,000 records one week. And then I was in the UK and I had just done this place called Shepherd's Bush in the UK. That's about 1,000 people. That's the most people I had ever played for. Andy calls me and he says, your record is number one. And I said, what does that mean? And he said, that means that they play your record more than anybody else's in the whole country. What's going through your mind when you hear that? <laughs> he goes, he goes, uh, you got, um, Jay-Z got 9,000 spins this week. You got 9,800 or something like that. And I was like, oh. My only, all I'm thinking is, wow, I beat Jay-Z. That's all I can think about. I didn't really know what that meant. Because I had never, like, I was never one to look on the charts. Like, when you're a fan, as a fan, I never cared who was number one. I just was liking the songs that I liked. So, all of a sudden, now I'm looking at charts and stuff like that. But that was kind of my first taste of what it was like to be popular. Yeah. And, and, and by their standards, selling a lot of records. Yeah, cause, and, that, and from there, that album just kind of explodes. Yeah. And, and it sounds like, like, I mean, it's a great album, but also largely, you know, this one song becomes massive um, yeah. all over the place. I mean, to the point where it ends up like, winning all these awards, it puts you on the award shows. How are you, I mean, because you go from, you know, working really hard in the LA scene, um, having a family, coming back, doing this album and then gigging around um, the UK and various different places, kind of like not really even entirely knowing what's happened with the album back in the US. And then all of a sudden boom, it explodes, ton of attention, ton of media S from a success standpoint. I mean, now, you know, like you're selling millions and millions of copies. That is a, you know, a financial success in the album's eyes also. How are you just handling it, like psychologically and emotionally? How are you kind of like handling that moment in time? And a lot of fame also, a lot of eyeballs on you. Yeah. Um, it was really new. I, was, I definitely had an asshole period where I was, you know, thought I was, you know, God's gift. And I was, I was acting that way. And, and uh, you know, suddenly I was getting whatever I wanted, you know. I could go to wherever I wanted. And if I wanted to fly private, they'd fly me private. And, I was, it was, it's kind of this thing where, you know, you, you really can do whatever you want. And if you're not, um, I don't know any human that wouldn't, wouldn't enjoy that and wouldn't exploit it and, and wouldn't abuse it a little bit. I mean, that's just not even normal. <laughs> so I, de I definitely went through that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, at the same time also, I know you've been really open about as that fame sort of like started coming your way. Mm -hmm. And you're really enjoying all this stuff. Also, you sort of like step into the world where there's also a lot of drugs, a lot of different kinds of drugs. Mm -hmm. um, and coming from coming from Ohio as a, from what I understand, also a fairly straight-laced kid, mm -hmm. this is kind of a new world. I mean, granted, yes, you were in LA before that, but this is sort of like the access to substances and to money and to fame on an entirely different level. Mm -hmm. And that became a bigger part of your world for a window of time. Well, I think I think I get people have this perspective of me as I'm this horrible drug addict. I, but I went to, I was just partying a lot. I was I was partying my, I think when I drank in my I was 28, I think, 28, 29. I don't know. So, and I had never done that before. I'd never been like you know a big drinker. I could barely smoked weed before. I smoked a little bit, but I was not like a big weed head, but I like, I like pot, but that was it. You know, I had never done blow before. First time I did ecstasy, I was in uh, Europe. And um, so all of a sudden I have access to all this stuff. And because a couple of my songs were about getting stoned, people assumed I was this big pot head. So I do shows and people would literally throw joints on stage. So we just had all this stuff and then we go to Europe and at that time, that's when MDMA started to become a really big deal, like the pure, like the good stuff. I don't know what they're doing now. Back then, it was like a little powder, and it was pure. 
So everybody was just trying stuff. And I think um, I did get attached to it because it was, it felt good. And I would write these incredible songs when I was, when I was high, like great songs. Like we did Mushrooms one night and I wrote the best song. I don't even remember it, but it was just an incredible song in my mind. <laughs> right in the moment. It's like, yeah. this is the best song ever. <laughs> exactly. So, so it was more access. It was more just, I had access to all this stuff. And, you know, there's no moderate way to do drugs. Like, you can think, oh, I just do blow on the weekends. But if you do blow on the weekends, then, you, then you're attached. You know what I mean? If you do it more than once, you, you kind of have a problem at that point because it affects your life so tremendously. But, um, um, yeah, I mean, also, and it, does, it does take over a little bit, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's also, I mean, when, you th when you're thinking to yourself, you know, I think about like the Beatles talked about their time where they're doing a lot of LSD and like to, yeah. to expand their mind and like write all this amazing music. But then I think about a lot of other people that I know that have been through windows like that who are either performing artists or, you know, in music business. Mm -hmm. And when they look back at what they thought was this incredible work, when they're sort of like in these mind expanding substances, yeah. like in once they were sort of like sober and like reflecting on it, they're like, Oh wow, that's not what I actually thought it was. I know. I do have an album. I won't admit to what one it was. <laughs> but I thought it was the greatest album and I'm yelling at Epic, like, why can't you sell this album? And I listened to it like maybe about six months ago and it's horrible. I was like, what is that? My voice is bad. The production is terrible. Whoever engineered it was must have been on drugs with me. It was it's terrible. But but yeah, you don't realize that till till later. Yeah. <laughs> Good Life Project is supported by Signature Hardware. So if you're looking for the perfect item to take your kitchen or bathroom or house up a notch, head over to SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife. They offer an incredibly wide variety of pieces for every room in your house with more than 20 years experience supplying vanity, sinks, tubs, hardware, plus all the classics, latest styles, and they're in sync with all the trending colors and design touches. And they also have amazing customer service to help guide you through the process. So you'll never feel lost or intimidated. Gotta love a company that really stands behind what they offer. Stephanie and I actually picked out a collection of eight furnishings that we love. They're unique and are 100% our style, so maybe you'll like them too. And you can see for yourself at SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife. You'll be amazed at the variety and the quality. So visit SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife to find your style today. That's SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife. Or just click the link in the show notes now. Real life is not always perfect, but with signature hardware, it is beautiful. I mean, the middle of this also, so that comes out and you start working on a series of follow-up albums too, but, but also it's kind of interesting because that early interest in screenwriting and the movie business mm -hmm. um, kind of starts to sneak back in, mm -hmm. you know, like both you on screen and also with music. Um, mm -hmm. So it's it's almost like that thing was that kind of always brewing in the background, or had you pretty much left it behind, and then all of a sudden you got these opportunities to sort of like step back into it in different ways. No, I I still uh, write actually, but uh, and and yeah, me doing movies was totally just fell in my lap. I I never thought I'd be doing any acting, but I got office to do stuff. And, yeah, because the. Yeah. The first was the first the very first one training day or was there something else there training day right so 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 the first time is is you on screen with one of the most iconic actors over time Denzel yeah I know <laughs> how does that land in your lap how does that how does that come to you that was cool because because uh, I wasn't gonna do it because like I said I didn't uh, see myself as an actress and then when he told me that Denzel was in it I told him I'd do it because I wanted to get pictures with Denzel to show my mom. <laughs> Because I wasn't taking him seriously at all, but, but you know, when you're on set and there's people looking, you want to do good. You don't want to make a fool of yourself. So, I got myself together and I learned my part and I got an acting coach and all that stuff. And, yeah, you know, I did my thing, but, but yeah, that that really fell in my lap. I lucked up on that one. Yeah, what was I mean when you do that? Because I know you get you probably get a certain feeling when you're on stage when you're like when you're either either recording or on stage that makes you it's almost just kind of like amazing. There's like a, a merging of you and the audience and the moment and the mm. music. Is there, do you get any similar sense of that from acting or not so much? 
No, it's just different. For me, acting is much more of a study. It's, it's much more of a, you know, preparing and, and uh, learning your lines. And then you have to, you know, study your character. And, and there's all these notes you make. Like the, the, the method I'm learning, like you have to, every line that the character reads, you have to write what they mean by that. Like, you know, you know how you say stuff that you don't mean or vice versa. So you have to go through every line and dissect what the characters thinking behind what they're saying, and then you, then you kind of start dressing like the character and all that Robert De Niro stuff, you know. So it's much more of a, of a study, much more of a, for me. I'm sure there's somebody like Meryl Streep. She can probably do it in her sleep by now. She probably doesn't have to do all that. Yeah. But I have to. But you know. it sounds, yeah, it sounds like you really approach it like a student. Like, let me, if I'm going to do this, yeah. let me study. Let me, were you taking lessons or working with a coach and stuff yeah, like that? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm still very much a student of it. But I've been on sets where, you know, I was on a set with Nicole Kidman and she had her coach there. And, you know, I've sat with actors who told me they spent seven months prepping for their part and stuff like that. So it really is a study. And I think you're always a student of, Whatever you do, you know, I'm still learning uh, music. I, I learn stuff about uh, singing every day. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like the two, do you feel like music and acting, like one makes you better at the other in any way or one gives you material for the other in any way? Um, for, 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 for acting, just through my singing, because only way... I really can get a message across as if I'm just completely like uh, empty of myself. If I'm, just, I have to be all heart. You know what I mean? Like when I get behind the mic, I can't have nothing in my head. I can't have, you know, nothing on my mind. Everything has to flow from one place. So I try to bring that to my acting, but it doesn't come as naturally as it does for what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, I guess especially, I guess maybe like even the closer part of the music business would be when you're recording in a studio, right? Because you don't have the responsiveness of the energy of the audience. It's kind of like, you know, there's other people involved and very likely multiple takes and trying it this way and trying it that way. But yeah. it's like you said on stage, you got one shot, it's high stakes, like we're all in this together. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The smile on your face when you just like thought about that was like, that, that seems like, is that your happy place? Yeah. Yeah, I feel, I feel, I'm really comfortable on stage. Probably a little too comfortable. But like I said, you know, when I get on stage, I'm I'm in that space where I don't have, there's nothing on me just but that. Like I, like I spend the whole day getting everything off me. And I don't, I don't do, I don't like to do interviews. If anybody has bad news for me, they got to wait. Like I'm, I don't, uh, you know, like I pray, like I just want to be a vessel. Like I just want to. Just want to own what I have, you know, my my art for the night. Do you know what I mean? And then when I get off stage, everything can come down. But when I'm up there, I just want, that's all I want to have on me, you know? So that's the only time in life you can really do that. Yeah. I think. No, I totally for get me, it. For me, anyway. The only, I mean, the closest thing I've ever experienced that I, I speak also. So, like, mm -hmm. I know, you know, if, if there's a couple thousand people waiting for me to, to step on stage for an hour... Some people I know for the couple hours before, they just want to socialize with everyone. They want to talk. I kind of hide out. Yeah. You know, I don't want, I'm just like in my head, sort of like, you know, like being in my own space. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I can't socialize. I don't want, I really don't want no phone calls because people say things and they weigh on you and they don't mean to. Like somebody could say, oh, um, your bed isn't made. And, you know, all of a sudden you think about your bed. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, but when you, you know, that's why it's just good to just go in where you got nothing else on you. And then, and then, because then you're giving your audience all you got. It's hard. If you give them all that other stress, and then they feel that too. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, completely. It's kind of funny because it also, to a certain extent, I think that ties in. So was it 2018 Ruby came out? Huh? Right? Um, and that's a lot of the theme of that album, right? It feels like this is an album that's, contemplative like you're reflecting a lot mm -hmm. and a lot of it is about being in the present moment right mm -hmm. well i mean the song buddha right mm -hmm. it's really about like I, i'm just focusing on what's happening in this moment right here which is a lot of what you're talking about yeah 
Mm, that's important. Do you feel like that's a sort of like a, a, a like a, a theme in your life these days? Um, I, I just learned that it's the most important because you know that because of course I have a lot of hangups about my past and things I wish wanted one different in my career with my kids, or, you know, with my love affairs. Oh, I mean, we all do, I guess. So, and then it's easy to dwell on that. It's easy to beat yourself up. That's the easiest thing in the world kick yourself all day you know what I mean so I'm just learning to to get in you know to get to be at where I'm at I don't know how better to say it like to, to get to where I'm at instead of because I spent I you know I wasted a lot of time trying to fix what I did before and I, I find out you can't really because people don't forget what you say or what you did and and you can try to clean stuff up but you already made a mess you know what I mean and and there's forgiveness and 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 that's all cool and and in the movies, but at the end of the day, um, when you hurt somebody, they're hurt. You know what I mean? And so you can uh, just try not to hurt anymore. That's really all you can can do is just try to do better next time. That's that's my life. Yeah, and and it seems like that's, I mean, especially thinking about the album, like that's a, it's kind of like a central thing for you. That song, by the way, I love. That you got Gary Clark Jr. Booyah. ripping on guitar in the background, and yeah. that—I mean, just somebody who blows my mind with sort of like the skills. Actually, he came up uh, a lot with uh, Jimmy Vaughn back, like down in Austin. Oh, really? Yeah, um, yeah, he's amazing. Yeah, so such a talent, such like an amazing um, person. Have you ever talked to him? I haven't. No, I would love to at some point. So we'll try and get him in the studio. And also, you're at this moment too, so like because your kids were in their twenties now, right? Early 20s. Yeah. Right. So, mm-hmm. in theory, they're out of the house and adults. They're not. <laughs> <laughs> they're not. I so wish I had followed my mother's footsteps. <laughs> kicked them out a long time ago. Yeah, that's my advice to parents. If you let them stay past 2021, 20, they're going to be there when they're 25. <laughs> yeah. No, not necessarily, but um, it's cool. We're, yeah. we're doing good. When they think about you, well, actually, I'm curious, you know, when they're coming up as, as kids in this environment of fame and, and busyness and travel, have you talked to them at all or sort of like had conversations over the years about what that's been like for them? Um, yeah, a little. They, I think it's all different for them because they have three and they, they all uh, have taken it in very differently. Like my son was telling me how when he was little, he thought that the way we lived was normal because by the time they were seven, eight, we were, we were doing really well, you know, and um, and he he thought that that was the norm, and and that everybody's mom people wanted to take pictures of them. He didn't realize that what we had was unique until he I think he told me that when he was like twelve or thirteen, no, not that late, maybe ten, and then um. It's so funny, like six months ago, he came to go to me and he goes, Mom, I'm sad. Like, he was shocked that he was sad. Like, his life has been so good that he wasn't used to having down moments. So he's going to think where I think reality is hitting him, where he's realizing what what it really is, you know, instead of how, you know, some of the things have been, you know, just kind of dropped from the sky for him. And then my oldest daughter, very evolved. She's actually more grown up than I am. So... And then I have another daughter who's who's 22 and she thinks she's 50 and she doesn't know hardly anything. So <laughs> they all they all take, you know, they're all different people. They all took it differently. You know yeah. what I mean? I mean, it's interesting you brought up your son just sort of like experiencing that for the first time. Did you go through waves like that at all, sort of like along the way also? I mean, I know... You know, that you came to a reckoning with you with with drugs and other stuff like that, and made a lot a lot of different choices to clean things up. Were there windows just from a mindset standpoint where you went through lulls or or depression or feelings on that side? Oh yeah, I, I had I was depressed for like two years. Oh no kidding. Yeah, I was like in and out of my bed for like two years. What was that about? I mean, looking back, do you do you have a sense? No, because because I, I think. Um... When you're depressed, like when you're genuinely, like when I think there's a difference. Like people when they're down, and they say I'm depressed because that's just such a catchy word. But but real depression, I think you don't. Sometimes you don't even know what's happening. You know, you just can't uh, seem to get get moving. Yeah, what, you know what I mean. What got you out of that that window? Um, 
Nothing in particular. I think it's just because uh, I don't do meds and stuff. So I just kind of had to wait it out. I mean, I was still like going through the motions and doing stuff I had to do, but just really unhappy and not not realizing that that was what I was going through. It's like there's one thing if you get up and you go to therapy and, and they say, well, oh, let me give you this pill and you need to do this. And, and then there's there's that where you're dealing with it. But I think like when you're really, really depressed, I'll speak for myself again. I, I, I wouldn't, I didn't really know what I was going through. I just knew that all I wanted to do was go home and go to bed. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think that's part of it for so many people. It's sort of, mm -hmm. um, you don't know exactly what it is or, yeah. and I think one of the big things that is that you don't know if it's ever going to end, <laughs> yeah. which is one of the biggest things that just that, you know, part of that struggle. Yeah. Cause you don't know what's supposed to end. Cause you just, I just thought, oh, I'm just being lazy. I just didn't want to do anything. Like I had no motivation and I didn't want to post on my Instagram. I didn't want to do <laughs> nothing. You know, I mean, I'd get up and get myself together cause I, cause my life is pretty, uh, active and I have a lot of stuff on my schedule but I started canceling stuff and a lot of like invites you know like my friend's birthdays I just didn't want to go you know what I mean yeah so you kind of just don't know that that's what you're going through you just you just don't want to do anything yeah yeah so as so as we sit here today I mean you're on the road we're weird times for sure oh my god um but like when you think about what's really exciting you right now like what is what is it that you're really sort of like excited about um i'm really excited about putting out records i got a lot of ideas and and as much as i despise what what the record industry has done to itself i'm excited about just exploiting that and just putting records out and because it has allowed you that you can now put out a record whenever you want i can put out a record like we can make this a record like a conversation and we can put it on spotify <laughs> done and say here's a record and we would get hit for sure, we probably get a lot, and so that's exciting. Um, um, so that that's kind of like I woke up today and I just I want to go to the studio because I got this idea and the way things are now, I'm I can I can put it out next week if I want. So I'm I'm excited to see what that's like just to put records out. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. I love that. Mm -hmm. So let's come full circle. We're hanging out here in this container with Good Life Project podcast. <laughs> yeah. And um, so if I offer up this phrase, to live a good life, what, mm -hmm. what comes up for you? To live a good life, good food. And I think it's important to really love someone. And I don't say that to be corny, but it's, it's necessary to feel that, you know, for somebody and to have that come back to you some kind of way. And uh, what else? I think a good life is seeing the world. It's good to see uh, what's around you and, and uh, what the world has to offer because you get so inundated with what's going to be taken away from you. You know what I mean? And what you can't do and, and uh, what's not safe. and You know, because everybody says, be safe, be careful. So automatically you're stressed because it's like, oh, something might happen. You know what I mean? You're like, nobody ever says, just, you know, go out and do whatever you want. You know what I mean? I go out and laugh a lot. Nobody ever says that. They say, oh, you know, don't touch anybody. So I think it's, uh, I think good times are important. I think it's very important to have fun and, and uh, uh, like, just, you, you know, Use up your moments, you know what I mean? Like, just make your days count, regardless of what what everybody's telling you to be scared of or what not to do. Like, just know that your day is, is big. Even if you are laying in bed all day, it's a big day. Like, what are you going to do while you're in bed? Do you know what I'm saying? Or if you do want to not go out because you're afraid of getting sick, then what, what are you going to do while you're holed up in your house? Do you know what I mean? Like, that's a good life. Just, like, uh, eating up, you know, what you got. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E-T-Y-P-E.com. Or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.